Is he in the right ra waiting room? Great question. Uh, I'll find it. There we go. Okay. Oh, there we go. Helene, that's a nice picture of you. <laughs> okay. I think we'll uh, we'll begin. Hey, Chemi. No, thanks for letting me in. I was thinking you were too, sorry. <laughs> yeah. you tell me, tell me because you know someone here, Chemi. Yeah. All about you, you know. <laughs> oh, so, um, so I'd like to, to thank everyone for coming, and I'd certainly like to thank Rabbi Schaffer for, for um, doing this program for us. I think it's a, a very interesting topic. It is a series, and um, it's our, the start of our summer learning series. So um, I think everyone knows Rabbi Schaffer, and I think we will um, go on from there. Um, I don't think we decided how many were going to be in this group, Rabbi, um, in the series. Um, every two weeks. That's, I think we'll have to play it by ear. Obviously, the summer can get a bit complicated, but... The next, the next okay. year will hopefully Bezrat Hashem in two weeks' time. Uh, I haven't quite decided the, the the subject matter, but I'm working on it. Uh, it's, uh, but hopefully two weeks, which will be twenty second. I think is it twenty second? Twenty second of June is the next, the next um, Zoom. Beautiful. Okay. All right, All right, so so thank you, Donna, for that introduction. And uh, Erev Tov, good evening to everybody. It's really nice to see. Um, it's interesting. My screen, half the people are, it's above and below. It's like the Mizbeach. There was a line on the altar of the temple going right through the middle of it. So above the altar was holy, below the altar was less holy. So I've got here this line of of, of people I can see above my above my screen, and then a whole bunch of names below, so I'm glad, I hope everybody can hear me at least, even if you're not listening, uh, you're not seeing me. Uh, you're seeing me, but I'm not seeing you. Um, my favorite story about that, by the way, very quickly, is that Stone College, there's quite a number of married students, and one girl was, her camera was always on, but it was off. And she told me, she said that, uh, you know, she needed to cover her hair, so she couldn't have the camera on. And I thought, that's only in Stone College. There's no other place in the world that you can get away with that excuse. Uh, and I had to accept it. What am I going to do? Uh, you know, it was what it was, but um, I thought that was great. The, um, the impetus for this evening is really very, very... I, I think it's kind of obvious. Uh, it occurred to me, of course, that's Pasha Korach, so go figure. We're talking about Machloka. Debates, arguments, to argue, not to argue. Um, I'm not going to say anything about Pasha Korach, because that's uh, for uh, this Shabbat, but uh, just one comment, which is the famous comment about when the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot talks about Korach, it says, It's an argument not for the sake of heaven, and the Mishnah says, Korach The argument of Korach and his congregation. So the Malbin, famous commentator of the 19th century, says, what do you mean his congregation? He's arguing with Moses. He's not arguing with his congregation. His congregation were with it. The argument was Korach and Moshe, not Korach and his, and his friends. And says the Malbin, no. He says, you don't understand. In a debate which is not the Shem Shemayim, then the camp which supposedly comes together to form one opinion, one body, is it, 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 it's symptomatic if it's not on the same, as we say today, they're not on the same page. They've all got different agendas. That that becomes an argument which is not for the sake of heaven. So Korah had one agenda. His people he had another agenda. The 250 heads of the Sanhedrin and Datan and Aviran and all those guys. They all had different agendas. So I was just thinking, it's not a good. This is not a good devour for the new Israeli government. I have to say, because it's a conglomeration of of so many different uh, elements. I hope it works because Israel needs a bit of political stability. There's no question about that. Uh, and I pray for the, the 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 welfare of the state of Israel, as we all do. Um, but that's the point. The point is that shame shemaim to have an argument which is going to be for the sake of heaven. It's got to be done with, I would say, a sense of respect, a sense of unity, that you may disagree. What we're going to say throughout this series is that there's no 
prohibition on disagreeing with each other. But it's not about the disagreement as much as it's about the way that you disagree. The way that you express your opposing point of view. If it's going to be an expression which is going to be full of, of venom and hatred and all the other, unfortunately, uh, styles of uh, disagreement that we see so much in the political, in the secular world, then, as far as we're concerned, that is not what we call machloke l'shem shamayim. And I just want to um, attribute, before we begin, the uh, source for these arguments, very, very interesting book that came out in Israel, about two or three years ago, by Rabbi Kuchaim Navon. I don't know him. He's a, he's a Rav in Modi'in. And he obviously gave a series of talks on this subject, because he brought out a book with, he, he brought over a hundred different debates throughout Jewish history. And um, uh, what I've decided to do, I think it make it interesting, is to do, look at an old debate, old meaning Talmudic or Mishnaic or whatever, and something which is very, I would say, much more modern, modern in Jewish history means from about the 1700s onwards, right? But ideally 19th or 20th century, as we will see. So it's a lot of uh, material to actually look at, but I want to uh, show you, I'm going to bring it up on screen, I've got a bit of a script, and I just want to follow this a little bit and show you where we're going to go with this. So have a look at this. This is the, as I said here, to argue or not to argue, an anecdote, right? And you can read it for yourselves, as, as I'll just repeat it uh, verbatim. Um, the story is told about a gentleman, two gentlemen meeting at the Congress of Berlin, 1878, for those who did their world history. And... One of them, the gentleman was a famous name, Bismarck, right? The chancellor at the time, or whatever, the head of, the, of, of Germany. And he met up with Benjamin Disraeli, the, the British Prime Minister. Right? So the British Prime Minister is uh, talking to him. Uh, the whole story of Disraeli is a very, very interesting story. I'm not going to talk about it now, but it's certainly worth finding out about. He, his parents converted to become Christian, but he always was called the Jewish Prime Minister. Right? I suppose with the name Israel, you couldn't really get away from it. So what happened was that they met at this conference, and Bismarck started complaining. And he said, Benjamin, my dear friend, he said, he said, I have a problem, a question. Someone, someone needs to mute themselves, I think. There we go. Okay, good. He said, I have a problem. I have a question. And the problem is that my people in Germany don't leave me alone. Parliament is arguing with me the whole time. So the Israeli said, so what? That's wonderful. So, so Bismarck said, what do you mean that's wonderful? And, and the Israeli said, if I was in Parliament in England, and they didn't argue with me. He said, I'd pay them to argue with, with me. I, would, I want the argument. I want the debate. Because Disraeli understood as being a very supreme politician of his day, that if you don't have this debate, and you don't have this argument, then the whole um, uh, sort of, uh, what's the word, the, the seeking of truth, you know, getting to the bottom of what's being discussed just doesn't happen. You need the voice, I mean here you call it checks and balances, but in, 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 this, in these terms we're talking about within the parliamentary uh, um, uh, uh, order of the day, Disraeli understood that debate is a very healthy thing. You may not agree, you probably won't agree, but at least that process of discussion, of going through the, uh, the 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 uh, the ups and downs of debate, and you can imagine how how fiery some of the debates were. Disraeli was 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 very famous for his turn of phrase, you know. And they 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 would stab each other in the back, but do it very politely. That's the way the British do it. And the reality of it is that I think it's it's really important for us to see how debates were conducted, both in the ancient world in our in our sources, which go right back into antiquity, and in the modern world of the 20th century, as you will see, if we get to this, I hope still this evening, a debate about the existence of the State of Israel. The first debate I want to look at, the first discussion, is famous. Now again, many of you will know this, and this is, this is an evening which is not devoted to giving enormous amount of new material, but it's looking at 
what I call some of the old favourites, because these are really special, special items. Now have a look at this. I'm just going to scroll it on a little bit, and this is quite something. My question, and you may like the question, and there's no, uh, not referring to anyone or any, anybody in particular, do all rabbis have big egos, right? That's the question. And it may very well be Yaffa's nodding ahead. I'm not going to say a word. This is just my question. I'm not referring or, or pointing or anything else. But I want to show you a fantastic, no other word to describe it, a fantastic story. And I got it here. It's a Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah. And again, as I said, I imagine most of you will have, may have heard of this and will know about this. It's a story that took place around the first century of the Common Era. Uh, it's likely after the Churban Habayit, after the Temple was destroyed. And what, in what it may be around that period. It's very difficult to, to put a time frame on it, but let's, let's put it around the period of the end of the Second Temple, maybe a little bit after. I'm not quite sure. But have a look at this. And again, what I'll do is uh, um, I'll read a little bit of the Hebrew, and you've got here the English that, as I go along, if you're not following the Hebrew, you can follow in the English translation. And it goes like this. Famous thing, that they used to not like we do, that we have a calendar, and we know that uh, tomorrow night is the beginning of Rosh Chodesh, they used to have to have witnesses turning up in Jerusalem. And they used to schlep from, from Haifa, and from further north, or from Elat, or the equivalent in those days, they, they, they would come for miles. And it says that when they got there, Raman Gamliel was the expert in astronomy. And he had on his wall, he had charts. Dumut, he had images of shapes of the moon. Must have been an interesting uh, experience to go and be with Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi Gamliel, for want of a better description, was the greatest rabbi of the generation, the chief rabbi. And it says it was on Bakato Baliato, it was on the wall of his of his uh, uh, his attic or wherever, his office, as we would say. Shebehem he would show the people, What did you see? Did you see A? B or C, right? And obviously he knew that it should be A, and if they come along and said they saw B, then the evidence is not acceptable. He knew what it should have been approximately. Now, here comes the story, and it's not about the story, but the, the end of the story. I, it makes me cry every time I read this. Two people turned up. We saw it in the morning, we saw it in the in the Mizrach in the east, and in the evening we saw it Marav in the west, the moon. Amar Rabbi Yochan ben Nuri. So says Rabbi Yochan ben Nuri. These are false witnesses. Can't be. The moon doesn't sort of travel like the sun across the sky. He didn't accept their evidence. That was Rabbi Yochan ben Nuri. When they came to Yavna, that's why I said this is after the destruction of the temple, because Yavna was the the central place of Jewish. Um, uh, not worship, but but the Sanhedrin, all the legal stuff went on in Yavna. Kiblon Rabban Gamliel, Rabban Gamliel received these witnesses. So Rabbi Yochanan said no, and Rabban Gamliel said yes. Va'od, and that's that's significant because Rabban Gamliel felt that this was his position, and he could overrule the other rabbi. Now, what? Not so straightforward. Va'od Another two turned up. Reinu bismano. We saw it, the moon, at the right time. We didn't see it the next night. Very strange. So it was here today, as they say, and gone tomorrow. So <laughs> what's going on? And again, we keep on Ram Gamliel. Ram Gamliel said, fine, you guys, I'm going to accept your, your evidence. Amar Rabbi Dosa ben Hirkanas, another rabbi says, again, they disagreed. Chief rabbi, with all due respect, you're not, you know, this is not right. How can you have the moon is, got, is here today and it's gone? To, it's not about clouds. I mean, in Israel, you know, many, certainly during the summer, very, very little cloud cover. You would see the moon every night. So he said, and he gives them a comparison. He says, It's like a testimony of a woman. The woman's just given birth. On day on Monday, and then you come back on a mocha on Tuesday. Kresa ben now basically she's still got a big tummy. So what do you mean? Is she is has she given birth and she's the baby's out or is the baby in? Right. In other words, you can't have both. That was the argument to Rabban Gamli, against Rabban Gamliel. Now listen to this. Amalo Rabbi Yeshua, 
Roanius the Varechus, a Rabbi Yoshua, who was the vice chief rabbi, if that's such a thing, what we call in Hebrew Sagan, he said, you know what, I accept the argument and Rabbi Gamliel is wrong, and this is not a declaration for a case of the new moon. Listen to this. Wow. This is where it gets really, really unbelievable. Shalachlo Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi Gamliel said a message. Wow. And he said, look, Rabbi Gamliel says, I've declared the new moon, let's, let's call it Monday. Right? Monday is, the, is Rosh Chodesh or Rosh Hashanah. Tuesday is the second day Rosh Hashanah. And then Yom Kippur will have to be the Wednesday. Now you, Rabbi Gamliel, excuse me, you, Rabbi Yoshua, do not accept Rosh Hashanah's Monday. So you made Rosh Hashanah Tuesday. And therefore, your Yom Kippur is not going to be the, on the week later. On the Wednesday, it's going to be on the Thursday. Right? So... We've got, essentially, two days declared by different rabbis as being Yom Kippur. And it occurred to me that it would be so, so extreme in those days that Roman Gamliel would have his minion on the Wednesday, when he thought it was Yom Kippur, and Yeshua would have his minion on the Thursday. Right? And go figure. That, was, that must have been a crazy Jewish world, where every rabbi was declaring Yom Kippur to the point where, presumably, they would have their own Yom Kippur it's an exclusion of anybody else who declared another date. Unbelievable. But l- here comes the bombshell. And this is why this Mishnah brings me to tears. Says Rabbi Gamliel, and he is exerting his authority. He's the chief rabbi. And I heard somebody explain once, in the eyes of the Romans, they wanted to see the Jews in control. The Romans did not persecute the Jews because they just wanted to persecute them. They, they went against rebellions. But if they could see that the Jews were controlling their people, like Rabbi Gamliel, then the Romans will leave you alone. You've got your own people controlling you. We're going to leave you alone. We're not going to make uh, um, attacks on the Jewish people. And they left them alone for about 50, 60 years. They left them alone. Till, um, till about 120 of the common era, and then, it, then the Romans started making trouble again. So it was like 50 years from the year 70 to 120, it was quiet. Now listen to this. Says Rabbi Gamliel, he says, Rabbi Yeshua, and he doesn't say with all due respect, he says, I make a decree, I make the law as follows. Your Yom Kippur, which you, you are, are declaring on that Thursday, I want you to come to me holding your money and holding your stick. In other words, not if there's no air of your carrying. Basically, I want you to come to me on the day where I say it's not Yom Kippur and you say it is Yom Kippur. And Rabbi Yeshua was devastated. The chief rabbi wants me to desecrate my Yom Kippur? How can he say such a thing? Look at the look what happened. Holachu Matzor Rabbi Akiva Mitzar. And he found Rabbi Akiva and he was very upset or rather Rabbi Akiva found him, excuse me. Rabbi Akiva came in and he saw Rabbi Yeshua was was devastated. Amalos Rabbi Akiva said, I have to tell you, Rabbi Gamliel is the chief rabbi. And his decision is final. And this is based on the psukim in the Torah. Elam Ode Hashem. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, etc., uh, etc. Et Just going to go down to the last three lines of the Hebrew. Listen to this. This is something. Ela Lamed. It's last three lines of the Hebrew with the word Ela. And again, you can see the English at the bottom here as well. It says, I'm coming to teach you. Basically, what happened was, when a court, a Jewish court, announces the Beth Din, it's as if Moshe Rabbeinu in his court has announced the Beth Din, has announced as a Beth Din, and the announcement is valid. Rabbi Yoshua said, in that case, I've got to go. And he took his stick, and he took his money, and look what he did. He took his money and his stick, and he went to Yavne, the town, on his Yom Kippur. Rabbi, Rabbi Yeshua thought for him it was Yom Kippur. Rabbi Gamliel told him it's not Yom Kippur. And Rabbi Yeshua went and he took his stick and his money and he went on the day for him was Yom Kippur. 
And he went to Rabban Gamliel. Unbelievable. And what did Rabban Gamliel do? Now you'll say to me, his chief rabbi, he's just thrown his weight around. And therefore, obviously, you know, this is a, a rabbi with an ego. Right? This is a rabbi who wants his opinion to be, to be law. Look what happened. And this is so beautiful. Omar Rabban Gamliel. Rabban Gamliel stood up. Firstly, he stood up. Chief rabbi stood up for him. Unashakor al... Where does it say here? Sorry, middle of the line. Rosho. He kissed him on the head. He kissed Rabbi Yoshua. Omalo, he said to him, Bo b'shalom. Come in peace. Rabbi v'tal, Rabbi v'talmidi. My Rebbe, my teacher, and my student. This is Rabbi Gamliel talking to Rabbi Yoshua, who came at the command of Rabbi Gamliel. Why are you my Rebbe? He called him his teacher. Rebbe b'chokhmah. You're my Rebbe in wisdom. That's why I believe he kissed him on the head. Because the head is the place of wisdom, the place the moach, the brain. And it was a symbolic kiss, as if to say, I respect your wisdom for what you've decided to do, to show, and, and remember, this is probably on view to the, to the authorities, my, author, my authority, Roman Gamaliel's authority, has been respected. But he said, the Talmidi, but you're also my student. Shekibalta devarai, that you accepted my words. Wow. Look what it says in the end. You are my teacher in wisdom, as Rabbi Yeshua was wise than anyone else in his generation. Rabbi Yeshua was a pretty smart man. And you are my student, you accepted my statement despite your agreement. It's, it, it's so precious, because what is it saying? It's saying that, yes, we can debate, we can, we can fundamentally disagree. Rabbi Gamliel is fundamentally disagreeing with Rabbi Yeshua and the other way around. To the point, I mean, what a disagreement. That one of them is saying Kol Nidre on the Wednesday with all the trappings of Yom Kippur, the Kittel and the, and the Chazan and the whole works. And the other rabbi is doing his Yom Kippur with the Chazan and the Kittel and the whole works on the Thursday. And nevertheless, and nevertheless, when it came to it, when it came to the, as you say, to the crunch, Rabbi Yoshua goes to Rabbi Gamliel, respects him, but what does Rabbi Gamliel do? This is what is so amazing. He doesn't turn around and pat himself on the back, as it were, and say, you know, wow, I won the debate. He gives Rabbi Yoshua, what we would say today, a big hug. And he says, Rabbi Yoshua, you are truly, truly an amazing individual. It's the way that he expressed his love even in the throes of a disagreement. Think back to Korah. Korah was never going to hug Moshe Rabbeinu in the height of their disagreement. <laughs> there was no sense that Korah was going to go up to Moshe and say, you know, accept, you've accepted me or I've accepted you and now we can hug and we can make, make amends. It wasn't going to be like that. And that's why I think this is so precious. When we agree or when we disagree let's put it more 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 clearly when we when we agree to disagree that's what i was going to say let's do it in the way of rabbi gamliel and rabbi yoshua it doesn't mean to say that i always have to be right and he always has to be wrong rabbi yoshua was humble enough to accept rabbi gamliel's authority even though he disagreed he disagreed with the principle that Rabbi Yeshua, excuse me, Rabbi Gamliel had established in defining Rosh Chodesh when in fact Rabbi Yeshua said this probably is not true. The witnesses were not telling, you know, were not reliable, let's put it that way. But it doesn't matter because once the decision was made, Rabbi Yeshua goes to Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Gamliel gives him a kiss and he hugs him and he says, not only did you come as my student, but you are my teacher. You're my Rebbe. You're the person that I now look up to because look what you did. Look what an example you set for the Jewish people. That they see the rabbis disagreeing and in the end, one becomes more authoritative than the other and they hug each other. It's beautiful. This is so so incredible. And I, I, I wish this was the way it was done today. I You know, there's so many situations today where... I don't even want to go into examples. Yes, we do disagree with each other, and we disagree violently. 
Every teacher in the room who's sitting and listening to Siddhi will know that if you're sitting at a lesson and not one student is asking a question or possibly disagreeing with what you said in a respectful way, then you know that probably wasn't such a great lesson. Because disagreement shows interest. It shows I'm aware of what you're saying and I want to present the counter point of view. But let's do it in a way of respect. Let's do it in a way of, of, of self Self-respect. I respect myself. I respect you as well. I hear you. You hear me. One of the inc- incredible experiences when you go to Israel is if you all of you would have done this once, once will, will have had the opportunity. I hope to go to the Knesset and you sit in on a debate and you say to yourself, "How in goodness gracious? How do they? How do they debate over there?" Because they're all shouting over each other, right? There's no seemingly, no one's really trying, not all the debates, obviously, but a lot of those debates, even when you're in the, you know, you're in the gallery up there, and you, you listen to it, and there's no sense of one person listening to the other. It's really quite extraordinary. And I know, for instance, if you compare it to watching the debates in Parliament in the UK, where at least they may have a bit of background noise when things are under disagreement, but the reality is they do listen to each other. In the UK, it's a very interesting thing in Parliament. Where the Prime Minister stands, if you watch Prime Minister's question time, you'll see there's a whole table in front of him, but they don't explain to you what's on the table. That table is covered with Bibles. And it's there, it should put the fear of God into anybody, that you're standing there giving your political statement, and in front of you are literally dozens of Bibles. Because that is a book which should give you the, the, the message, the, uh, the sense, correct, my honourable gentleman, correct, the, the message, the sense that that, that is what you're doing. You're, you're, you're literally, in your debates, you're standing before God. Right? I don't know whether that is the message that, that the, every parliamentarian realizes, but that's, that was what it was all about. And that's something, I mean, it'd be nice to see in the Knesset that they had a Tanakh somewhere. I'm sure they do. But, you know, the reality of it is that uh, it, it, it is important to listen. It's important to show respect. You may disagree, but look what happened in the story of Roman Gamliel, how the chief rabbi then shows how the person talking to him becomes his Rebbe, becomes his teacher. How beautiful is that? That's debate number one. The ancient world. And boy, we've got so much to learn from those guys. I, don't, I mean, Gomorrah is full of machloket, of course. And Disraeli, back to the story, Disraeli said to Bismarck, my tradition is the Jewish tradition, even though he's not practicing Jew anymore, my tradition of asking people to disagree with me comes from biblical, and, and he quoted, uh, you know, Talmudic sources. So the reality, uh, the Israeli knew this. He knew that that was the Jewish tradition. I want to take you to the 20th century. I want to jump 2,000 years. And we're going to go to the second, the second item. And this is, this is a wow. And I came across this quite recently. Uh, I knew about it, but I hadn't come across the information. I just brought to your attention uh, a Wikipedia. You can all look this up. Um, and in fact, what I can do, I can send this page to maybe to, to Donna. And if you want the handout, then, you know, if you email um, uh, Donna, maybe, maybe she, if you don't mind to do that, you can email me. I can send it to you as well. You know, just to have this, this in front of you so that you have the source. Right? I just show you here, Gamliel was a controversial leader. Right? There's other stories about Ram Gamliel, which I'm not going to go into now, um, where he actually was thrown out of the job for a, for, for a long period of time. He, he overstepped the mark. Right? But this story, the beauty of this story is the way that he received Rabbi Yoshua's, uh, you know, sort of agreement on what um, uh, Ram Gamliel had decided. Um, I'll leave that article for the moment. I'm going to go to... Oh, here we go. Just lessons from the story. Never become too full of one's own importance. All right? I think that's quite an obvious lesson. Show active respect for one's opponent if you vanquish his argument. Kiss on his head. I respect your thought process. That, I believe, is what the kissing on the head was, which led you to come today. I think that's what really happened. And then, never be afraid to express a contrary view. 
the views are important because you know we we have different as the Gemara says you know the, the human being is dis, is is distinguished by the fact that our faces are different and we look different and and we think differently. However, this is a sign of genuine interest and passion for the debated issue. We're moving to the 20th century. Listen to this. It's all in the family, as I said. This is debate number two. And this is the family known as Soloveitchik. And many uh, people here uh, knew the Rav, knew Rav Soloveitchik, or knew of Rav Soloveitchik. And I don't think many people realize what his family background was really all about. Very, very fascinating. Obviously, Rav Soloveitchik, came from uh, Lithuania and he came via Berlin and various other places uh, and ended up in the United States. His father became uh, uh, Rosh Yeshiva in, in Yeshiva University and then Rab Soloveitchik took over, J.B. Soloveitchik took over in the 1940s and was there uh, literally, essentially, till he died in the 1990s. But what is so interesting is the Soloveitchik family. When you go a bit further afield, his father's name was Moshe. This Rosh Yeshiva in the 1930s died in 1941. But his brother, who was also, they were sons of the famous Reb Chaim, the grandfather. And the, the brother of Reb of, of, um, Moshe was known by his, his uh, Yiddish name, Reb Velvel. Velvel, he was known as Yitzchak Ze'ev. That was his Hebrew name. But Ze'ev means a wolf, and Velvel in Yiddish is a wolf. So he was known as Reb Velvel. This is what everybody... To this day, when they talk about what is called the Briskarov, that was the town where they came from, in Brisk, in Lithuania, in Poland, depending on where the border was, and that family was known as the Brisker Rebbers, the Brisker Rebbeim. And Soloveitchik, phenomenal Tamagaon, uh, a great, great mind, Rebbevelvela, he got out of Warsaw, it's a whole story. How he got out of Warsaw in 1940, 1941, is, was a nace that he managed to leave, and he got to Eret Israel uh, through occupied territory, and there's a, a, a book's been written about it. Unbelievable. And he was in Israel in, in 19, I think he got there in 1941, 1942, and by that time he was settled in Yerushalayim, and he died in 1958. One of the distinguishing features of the Israel Soloveitchik, as opposed to the American branch, was their incredible anti-Zionism. They were just, if you think about the Satma Hasidim as being against the state of Israel, the Israeli Soloveitchiks were equally as against the state of Israel. The last son of Rabbi Velvel Soloveitch, who died in 1958, Rabbi Meshulam David, who was the, the, the last living son, died only about six months ago. I think he died of COVID, if I'm not mistaken. He was in Israel, in Yerushalayim. He was 99 years old when he died. So this is a dynasty and it's kept going and there are um, and there's a big yeshiva in, in, in Yerushalayim called the Briska Yeshiva. Very, very well known, but their anti-Zionism is quite extraordinary. Well, I remember when I was in Yeshiva in the north of England, they spoke about um, uh, Reb Velvel and they spoke about his son, the Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. They always pointed out they never took a penny from the Israeli government <coughs> in any sort of support. And that was very rare, because most yeshivas, one of the things they all have the same problem with is that they don't have enough money. And when the Israeli government comes along and, and says, we're going to help you and support you, it's a bracha, it's a blessing from the government. But the briskers, no. They were absolutely adamant, we're not taking a penny from the Israeli government. Because they disagreed fundamentally with the existence of the state of Israel, even though they were living there. Which again, you know, you think to yourself, this is kind of odd. But that's the way they were. Now, what is so interesting is, is this, I mean, this history, I hope, is uh, something which, you know, maybe is news to you. But more to the point is the relationship between Rav Soloveitchik in the United States, who eventually became the head of the Mizrahi, very re pro-Zionist, religious Zionist organization, and obviously uh, the Rosh Yeshiva in, in Yeshiva University, etc., etc., and the uncle, Reb Velvela, living in Eretz Israel, being absolutely the poles apart when it came to the attitude towards the state of Israel. What is fascinating is when Reb Soloveitchik died in 1958, in Israel, Reb Velvel, 
His nephew, J.B. Soloveitchik, in New York, gave a hesper. He gave a eulogy about his uncle. And the eulogy is precious. It is so beautiful. He obviously loved, he loved the family from where he came from, from the, he, he'd known Reb Chaim, he knew his grandfather who died in 1918, obviously he knew his uncle Velvel, I think there was another brother or another, I'm not sure, I think it was a sister, the, the, a whole dynasty over there of Soloveitchik's. And he was part of that. The, the, the style of learning of Soloveitchik in New York is copying exactly the style of learning that you have in the Brisky Shiva in Eretz Yisrael. There's not, not really very much to distinguish. They're two styles of, of, of learning. But what does distinguish them is their... In, on the one hand, the American um, uh, uh, contingent being so pro-Zionist and the Israeli contingent being so anti-Zionist. And when Revelvola died, Rab Soloveitchik in New York gave a hesper where he gave respect to his uncle. Now, now in terms of ideology, they were, they were literally worlds apart. But this is what I want to show you. The way that he wrote about his uncle is quite extraordinary. I just want to look at the screen for a second just to give you the pictures because it's always good to see who is who. This is the one of the famous photos of, I've got it here, the, what I call the uncle, Rabbi Yitzhak Zev Halevi Soloveitchik, um, who was a scion, I like that word, Chemi, uh, that's a good word for next week, a scion of the Soloveitchik rabbinical dynasty. Okay, so he was at the top of the tree, as they say. And this is the rabbi, and uh, my, my Rosh Hashiva in, in London, in, in Gateshead, in England, was one of his, uh, the Rosh Hashiva is still alive, thank God, Rabbi Gurevitz, is one of his students. And this Rabbi Soloveitchik studied with, my, with his father, my, my Rosh Hashiva at the time, Rabbi Leib Gurevitch, was a Chavrusa, was a study partner with Rabbi Velvel Soloveitchik. Now, uh, go down the page, you've got the nephew. The Rosh Yeshiva of Ritz, Isaac O'Connor Theological Seminary, was known as the Rav, or some say the Rav, depending how you pronounce it, and ordained close to 2,000 rabbis. That's an incredible concept, right? You know, when we talk about why you rabbis, it, it's not just, uh, um, you know, sort of a, an expression, but it's a real thing. This has changed orthodoxy. I believe one of the things of orthodoxy, why it's become so powerful in America, is, on the one hand, the growth of the, what we would call the right wing, the Haredi one, but also the incredible, incredible influence that why you rabbis, as we will experience, please God, in Cherry Hill, that whole concept is it, it's something which has made orthodoxy relevant and, and, and exciting. It, it's just beyond belief. And that is Rab Soloveitchik. That's, that was his uh, um, inspiration. Again, I've got the picture here. This is one of the early photos. You can tell just by looking at them. You know, this is the, I would call the American, more put together, looking very American. And here is the Israeli, sort of Polish, you know, the, the Godel, the, the, the great rabbi. But certainly, you know, it's all part of the family. But listen to this. I just want to take you back to a text, because I've got to show you this text. What Rabbi Soloveitchik in, um, in America, when he wrote about his uncle. What he writes here, and I know this is right in the middle of the speech, and I'm sorry, the Hebrew is not easy, and I couldn't find any English translation for this whatsoever. So please bear with me, because I'm just going to show you the, the, the enormous respect and beauty of the language when Rabbi Soloveitchik in the United States writes about his uncle in, uh, in Israel, even though he recognizes how anti-Zionistic his uncle really was. He says basically the following, and I'll, I'll sort of paraphrase it a little bit before I just read a little bit of the text, because when you read the text, you realize what an, an, a special man Rabbi Soloveitchik in, in America was, and I'm sure Rabbi was in Israel as well. And what Rabbi Soloveitchik in America said is like this. He says that for the Soloveitchiks, the concept of Ish Halakha. In fact, Rab, Rab Soloveitchik in America wrote this famous book, The Man of The Lowly Man of Faith. Right? Ish Halakha is called in Hebrew. And the fact is that for he says for his uncle and for that whole world in Lithuania, 
The concept of halacha was the defining concept of Jewishness. Jewishness will be defined by its by the concept or whatever you were discussing within the framework of halacha. And he says, when you dealt with the world around you, you were dealing with what he calls realia, reality. Right? We all into reality shows today, so-called reality, not really. But the reality is that the real reality, that the world around you is reality. And what, what Reb Soloveitchik in America explained is that when the reality would fit into a halachic framework, then it would be recognized and it would be understood by the man of halacha referring to his uncle. He says the problem with the state of Israel, particularly at the beginning, was that it was so secular and the leaders, people like Ben-Gurion, and they were just so... The word they use in Hebrew, which I don't, is a word I don't like, but it's the word everybody uses, chiloni. Right? People who just were not in any way uh, religiously motivated, but they were certainly motivated by the land of Israel. But for Rab Soloveitchik, it was something which he saw as being so secular, could have no place in any halachic framework whatsoever. Says Rab Soloveitchik in New York, that because of that, and he, he was worried, Rab Soloveitchik in, in Israel, in, in, uh, in Yushalayim, that this secular government was going to become so anti-religious and so anti-the rabbis and everybody else that he just withdrew from supporting and having anything to do with it. It's very, very fascinating. And says Rav Soloveitchik in New York, even though, even though I myself say quite clearly, I want to show you this expression, that the state of Israel has been the most amazing event in the history of the Jewish people for the last 2,000 years, for Rav Soloveitchik in Israel it didn't register in the same way. I'm trying to explain it because what Rav Soloveitchik in New York is basically saying is I respect my uncle, I disagree with him, but I understand where he's coming from. And he wants to show respect to his uncle at the moment when his uncle has passed away by, by, by explaining where his uncle came from. Listen to this. This is the underlining over here, and it's so beautiful. He says, it's very difficult Hebrew, I apologize. That means the disappointment. My uncle was so disappointed in the leadership at the beginning of the state of Israel, because of the event, the establishment of the state, etc., which I know says J.B. Soloveitchik, this is the most important event, which has happened in the days of the Jew, Jewish history, in the modern period. So for Rab Soloveitchik in New York, it's the most incredible event in Jewish history. For Rab Soloveitchik in Eretz Israel, living in, in Palestine at the time, in Jerusalem, it just was not something which gave him anything but heartache and disappointment. Listen to this. He goes on, I'm going to go down to where it's underlined, the next underlining. He says, Hush came for He says, Morning and evening, Hitzhira Roshea Medina, the first heads of the, of the state, were proclaiming, Shehi Medinat Achok, Velo Medinat Alacha. The state of Israel was a state of, based on law, the, um, uh, you know, so as we understand the, the, uh, the various uh, constitutional uh, documents that exist. But it was not announced as a midinat halacha, as a country based on Jewish law. Uliprakim, he says, from time to time, gamochichu b'masim, they showed through their actions. Shedivreim eile kenimheim, that what Rab Soloveitchik in Eretz Yisrael was arguing was true. Hamadina b'makom litkarev la sidrad ha'idialit, it says the state of Israel, instead of going to what could have been an ideal situation, being more 
accommodating for, for halachic purposes, moved away from it and allowed Chilul Shabbat in certain places and, and the whole, all, the, all the religious issues which have gone on in the last 70 years, which I have to say today are not as uh, complicated maybe as they were at the beginning in 1948. But he says, listen to this, because of all these considerations, it was difficult for my uncle Lismoch et Yadav allowed to rest his hands upon the state of Israel, Ulekadsha, and to sanctify it. Kamot Shehi, as it was, Bapart Sufa Achiloni, where it had a secular face to it. The face of the state of Israel was, at that time, particularly, was very secular. He says his uncle just couldn't come to terms with what the state of Israel really was all about. I'm just going to show you the next column, where it's, under, where it's underlined. And again, I, this whole article is just beautiful and really worth reading. But he says, My uncle knew all of this. He knew all the issues at the beginning of the state of Israel. And we know that at the beginning, that it was based really on, 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 on almost communist concepts, you know, the early Zionists, etc. However, Ulam, he says, my uncle just had a different spirit. His whole approach to it was different. He was afraid that there would be such constant conflict between the religious and secular elements in Israel. It will cause the uh, people to, to the, 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 uh, the, 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 the leadership, not the religious leadership, unfortunately to, to make concessions, or rather the religious leadership would have to make concessions to the secular leadership, the histaglut ala sidra dialit le sidra riyalit. And it would just go from something which could have been an ideal to something which in realistic terms was a secular country. But, says Rab Salavain, this is what is so beautiful, this is again brings me to tears. Min Hamadina, this separation from the state of Israel by Rab Salavechik in Yushalayim, Nasabatocha Baofim paradoxali says in a paradoxical way, also contain Chiba Amukal Aretz. There's no question his love for Eretz Israel was deep. Tavuah Bidafus Chavayot Kedushata which was embedded in the, in, the, in the existence of the holiness of Eretz Israel. So, the way he writes, he could have said, my uncle was, with all due respect, you know, how should we say, he, he wasn't quite there. He could have said, my uncle, because of what he went through in the war, and he escaped Warsaw, and, he, and, and, and had to run away, and the Germans were chasing him, and there's a whole story about it. Maybe that effect, he didn't say any of that, because he knew that his uncle's position about the state of Israel was something which was he respected where it came from. Rab Soloveitchik in New York didn't follow that concept because for him the declaration of the state of Israel was one of the greatest events in the history of Amis. I'm just going to go back off the screen. But the reality of it is, says Rab Soloveitchik in New York, my uncle, I understand where he came from. I knew what he was all about because in his world, this secular country has no place when it comes to the concept of halacha. And why do I bring this? Because again, this is so, this is a machlok in the Shem Shemayim. This is a very deep division. But the words, the, the expression, the beauty of the way that he talks about his uncle, as in such positive way, even though I don't agree with his, his Weltanschauung, his, his view of the world, I still respect what he was saying, and I respect the way that he, he, he as you say, he stuck to his guns, he stuck to his principles. And that's something which, again, I find so uplifting. In the world of rabbinic discourse, and particularly rabbinic debate, and rabbinic disagreement, it is so beautiful to see such a fundamental disagreement, but to be expressed in words of love, and in words in such beautiful terms. And, and, and that, again, is, is, is precious. It's, it's the same as Raman Gamaliel. He's basically saying to his uncle, I recognize, he kisses his uncle on the head. And he says, I recognize your wisdom, 
But we disagree, but I respect totally what you stand for, even though I fundamentally disagree with what you see in terms of the event of 1948, the Declaration of the State of Israel. We've just got two examples this evening, but what precious examples they are. I'm going to go back on screen. I just want to show you my conclusion. And maybe I'll take some questions at the end. Um, Oh, sorry, let me go back to the other. Here we go. The disagreement is fundamental, but the way it is presented is a remarkable expression of a true machloke l'shem shamayim. This is an argument for the sake of heaven. It, it can't be anything else, because look at the way that Rabbi Soloveitchik expresses himself. Look at the way that Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Yeshua expressed themselves. These are people who are passionate about their belief. But at the same time, as I said over here, they are disagreeing with respect and even with love. Now, you may come to me and argue, what did Rabbi Soloveitchik in Yerushalayim say about his nephew in New York, that I don't know. And I honestly am not sure whether it works both ways. I can't speak for Rab Soloveitchik in Yerushalayim. But what I can say is that there's a famous story that I think two of his sons, Rab Soloveitchik, he had, he had a number of sons, and two of them ended up in New York. And they set, they set themselves up in some sort of uh, a business or whatever in New York. And Rabbi Soloveitchik in Yerushalayim insisted, he, he contacted them as soon as he could, and he heard, they said to him, Abba, we're, we're doing okay over here, you know, we're doing fine. He said, you come back to Eretz Israel." He insisted that they come back to Eretz Israel, even if they were establishing, I'm not sure whether they were establishing yeshiva, what they were doing in New York, but he insisted they come to Eretz Israel, and they came. And they respected their father. It may, may not have come, you know, the next day. It may have taken a bit of time, but they came back to Eretz Israel because their father said that that's the place where we should be. And again, this was not a statement of Zionistic fervor, as we would call it today, but this was a true statement of Ahavat Eretz Israel, the love of Eretz Israel. And what I can say to you is, and again, I, I, I'm probably preaching to the choir here, when it comes to the way we disagree. Learn from Rabbi Gamliel. Learn from Rabbi Yeshua. Learn from Rabbi Soloveitchik. Learn from, from, from these great men. Ha- not only how to disagree, but how to express those disagreements. In a way, in a language which, which is not full of, of invective and, and hatred. I mean, I heard today some of the comments about the new Israeli government from religious Jews, from very religious Jews, and it turns my stomach. And it, it's just so upsetting, because that's the Sinachinam, which is still the reason why, when, when, you know, Mashiach is still, as you say, hanging out there. He's not, he's not yet ready to come back. Not yet ready to be with us, Mashiach. Because of this invective, let us learn from these beautiful men, these beautiful human beings, how they expressed themselves, how they presented their arguments, and in the end of the day, when they had to, disagree how they did it, either to give in to the authority, in the case of Rabbi Yeshua giving in to the authority of Ram Gamliel, or in the case of Rabbi Soloveitchik, respecting his uncle's view, even though fundamentally he disagreed with it. I, I, can't, I, I, I can't believe there's anything more important in the Jewish world at this time than to think on those lines. And Bezrat Hashem, in, in two weeks' time, we'll have maybe another set of examples also looking at maybe slightly different debates, different disagreements. Uh, I'm thinking of talking about that wonderful discussion of Kala Noiva Chasuda. Uh, just, uh, I'll just throw it out there, that, that you're supposed to go to a wedding and say how beautiful is the bride. And what happens if, you know, she's not exactly as beautiful as you're supposed to, you know, say. It's a, it's a challenging thing. And there's a big debate between Hillel and Shammai. Uh, we'll say more about that maybe next time. Yeah, that's a whole different discussion. Uh, I hope this strikes a chord. I hope this strikes a chord because it's devorim hayotzi min alev. It's coming from my heart. The way that we don't know these print, we should know. The, the, to me, people who study Talmud every day for the, for all their lives and still don't know how to, to to disagree with respect is is a mystery to me. Because how can you sit and study that book for all your life 
and not know the fundamental of what that book is teaching, which is not only about disagreement, but how to express that disagreement. I, I don't know, I throw my hands up sometimes. Any comments, any questions? I hope, I hope this uh, kept you awake at least. Chemi, you're smiling, that's a good sign. I hope so. <laughs> my honourable gentleman there in, in Cherry Hill, I hope everything is good. Yeah. I had a question. Uh, yes, please. Um, I understood that Soloveitchik never visited Israel. Sorry, it's not exactly on topic. But, um, yeah, it's interesting because it, it's not true. He did. That's true. He went in, and it's a long, it's a long time ago. Because the same question with Lubavitcher Rebbe, you know, there's two, there's two gentlemen we are, we asked the same question. With Soloveitchik, he was on the short list for chief rabbi of Palestine in 1935. Go figure that one. And apparently, I think he went. He went to Tel Aviv, and he didn't get the job. Right? He was very young, um, 31, 32 years old. Rav Herzog from Ireland. Uh, Rav Herzog from Ireland got the job. He was very much a senior. And um, apparently that, that was, you're right, I think the last time that Rav Soloveitchik went to Eretz Israel. That, that's a question. That is a question. But I think you know, we ask it about Lubavitcher Rebbe as well. And in fact, I just read Rabbi Goran, who was the chief rabbi of Israel, whenever he came to New York, he went to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, he must have been a real pain in the, you know what, he, he was, said, Rebbe, why don't you come and live in Israel? He asked him the same question every time. And the Rebbe had to give him an excuse every time. I'm not coming because, because, because. Uh, Rav Goran was very, very, uh, um, he didn't stand on ceremony. He, you know, he pushed the point as much as he could. But the Rebbe had his reasons. And I suspect Rabbi Soloveitchik also. I have to respect that. Yeah, Chemi, please. So, yeah, I mean, I know it's 9.30, so I guess the people want to log out. Oh, I had wow. a question. You made, me, you made me think of a question. You were mentioning the uh, Rabbi Gamaliel and Gomorrah, right? So yeah. I happened to, I got Gomorrah Kedushin in front of me, and I happened to read this this morning in, uh, in, in what I was learning. And what I'm about to read to you is very tame, okay? But... But so so Rabbi Hood is uh, uh, talking um, and with uh, Ben Bagbag, great name by the way. Yes, yes. Um, uh, and and he says, uh, I'm certain that you know what you're talking about, but don't you know how to expound a kavachomer? And like totally like taking the you know rip, ripping him. You yeah, know, like, yeah. And 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 that is absolutely uh, tame compared with some of the other amazing zingers that the Rebbeim of the Gemara... They threw at each other. Like, like some of them are like, <laughs> you're a brick. Like, how could you even say that? Some of the insults that the rabbis uh, share of each other in the Gemara are just, they're awesome, but it also made me wonder, uh, to your point about respecting each other, um, are they all in jest? Do they just have a really good sense of humor? Are we meant to take these insults as all uh, joking around? Or do you think that there are some of them actually insulting, you know, I, saying, we really are as big as a brick type of thing? Yeah, I, I tell you what, I, it, it's a big topic. There is a very famous article by the Chovitz Chaim, he wrote about this, uh, because he saw that the language didn't fit the, the picture. If somebody calls another guy an idiot when he should be saying, my, my dear friend, it doesn't exactly sound right. The Babylonian uh, school was definitely considered inferior to the school in Israel. And the Israeli rabbis were very um, uh, critical. It's just had it now also on the Dafyomi. They called the Babylonians living in the dark because their country was uh, not as exposed to the sun as it was in Eretz Yisrael. Obviously, the double meaning, you know, you're not as enlightened as we are, right? It's a, it's a complicated issue, and you have to say they did have that sharpness. I think you talk about the word in Hebrew, lechaded, to sharpen the other person who may be pushed into rethinking his position on a particular topic. That's the way I've always understood. I don't see it as personal invective, but I see it as a push to try and get the other guy to sit down and say, oh, I need to think about this again. But you have to take every case, case by case. And there may have been, you know, not everyone was a perfect gentleman. I may have to, I have to say that as well. They were human beings. And maybe every so often they would have expressed human 
great qualities, but at the same time, human failings. I'm not going to make excuses for them. But as I said, there's a famous article by the Chovitz Chaim. I'll have to show it to you, and we'll, we'll look at it together, because it's, 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 it's a long shit. It's not a, it's not a five-minute thing. I think there should be a, like a compendium of rabbinic, Talmudic rabbinic insults, because some of them are awesome. Oh, they're awesome. There is one of Shakespearean insults, by the way, which are also pretty awesome. Uh, but Lahavdil, that's a different discussion for another time. Uh, anybody else? Otherwise, I'm going to call it an evening. Uh, is that a hand up, or is that... No, that's my... No, it's not a hand. Sorry. Um, Donna, just to say thank you again for the um, bringing this together. I hope... Uh, that it was it was in, in, enlightening and inspiring. That was my aim. Um, what is what please, is? My, please send us our the uh, handouts, Donna. Okay. The yeah. Um, again, to the to the person who just uh, texted me or messaged me, um, if you if you go through to uh, Donna, she she has my email as well. I don't want to put it out there now on the on the screen, but uh, Donna has all the information. So that would be very helpful. Um, any other? Yes. Thank you. This was this was great. Um, it's a great start to this whole series, and I'm looking forward. I'm sure as everyone is um, to the next one. Okay. As we uh, learn how to agree to disagree or argue <laughs> or not to argue. <laughs> the answer is we we do argue. Sorry. I completely agree with you. Oh, that's right. I, 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 I appreciate that agreement. Thank you very much. That's the wonderful way to end the evening. I really, really like that. Uh, everybody, have a wonderful evening. Erev Tov. And I look forward in two weeks' time. Bezrat Hashem. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Laila Tov. Laila Tov. Laila Tov.